This is Your Liturgical Bible, a Bible study series from Enacting the Kingdom. We believe that through community, ritual, and liturgy, the story of the Bible comes to life. Join Father Jeffrey and I as we learn to express the beauty of the biblical story together. The Divine Council is our topic today, the Divine Council. Now, what is the Divine Council, Father Jeffrey? I thought what I would do to start is maybe paint out, you know, if you were to open up Wikipedia and read about the Divine Council, what would it tell you? Um, that's probably a good place to start. And then what we can do is sort of contextualize that within um, our Orthodox context. That makes sense? It does indeed, yeah. Okay. Well, the Divine Council, in my own words, is this, I guess you could say, uh, narrative or theological idea that exists within the writings of the scriptures that portray Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the quote-unquote most high God, um, this almost assuming that other gods exist, but that God, uh, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the most high out of all those gods, the highest of that category, I suppose. And then you have God being portrayed as sitting on the throne in heaven, you know, God's realm, and then surrounding him are these lesser gods uh, who sit in council with him, and he. Uh, Yahweh has given authority to these powers to rule parts of creation. He sort of disseminates that power. And um, so, yeah, I guess it's sort of this theological understanding or this uh, perhaps a narrative expression of the role of these spiritual beings that exist, um, but that they are supposed to be helping in the administration of creation. But often things actually go wrong with them as well. And then you get you know, the gods of the nations or demons or whatever it might be that we get these lines in the Psalms. Um, that's my quick praise, Father. But before we get to the Orthodox side of things, do you want to fill in any blanks there that I may have left out or, or was that uh, acceptable enough? Oh, certainly acceptable, but maybe just to state some of the obvious implications of this. And that is that um, we, you know, talk about monotheism in uh Judaism and Christianity, and obviously Islam as well, which are the Abrahamic religions as being monotheistic faiths, as compared to, say, paganism, where there are multiple gods, right? And those gods are associated with various powers of heaven and earth and, you know, storms and, and sky and water and all of that sort of thing. And um, it's important to understand that when we talk about monotheism in the Bible, we're not talking about you know, an, a singular uh, divine being that is, you know, just it's like the kind of philosophical deity, right? That that really kind of emerges out of ultimately Greek philosophy, and then in our modern era and so forth. Monotheism in the Bible is, is ex exactly as you described. So all the peoples of the ancient Near East would have had these kind of pantheons of gods, gods of this, gods of that, and they, they met together in, in council. And the, the Israelite intuition from their encounter with the living God, right? And, and we'll start with what is really the, the kind of defining moment, which is that the encounter of uh, that God with Moses and the deliverance of that people from slavery in Egypt and the making of a covenant, you know, with them. But that covenantal monotheism isn't that, you know, they come to believe in one God and no other gods, but as, as you say, the, the one God who is the God above all other gods. And, you know, you shall have no other gods 
beside me, you know, which in modern parlance people take to mean, oh, there are no other gods, but but they mean at the same rank, right? Beside, in in the hierarchy at the same level. And that that's earth shattering or heaven shattering, really, if you once you start to kind of parse that out. And it makes sense of a lot of passages that are otherwise, you know, they don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. It also makes sense of the fact that the the one one of the main words for God in the Hebrew and of the scriptures is Elohim, which is a plural, right? And and that word gets translated variously as just God, and, and in the English translations, we're accustomed to having that as a capital G, you know, God. But other times, it's translated gods with a small g. Other times sons of God or angelic beings or heavenly beings, that sort of thing. So you have to be careful. Again, this is one of those cases where you need to dwell with the passages a little bit and maybe dig a bit, look at your interlinear translation and find, okay, what is the word that's being, you know, used behind here? But there are an awful lot of passages in which, you know, Yahweh is seen to be the the God, capital G, amidst the gods, small g. Now, what that means ultimately is you know, it, the subject of a lot of scholarship and a lot of reflection and a lot of prayer and a lot of spiritual, you know, um, discernment over through the ages. And it's not always going to be the same at different stages in, in the, the Bible's history. But, but that's the kind of picture we have that monotheism does not imply one God and no other beings, no other heavenly beings, but rather the one true God that reigns over all of them. And and what Israel is invited to do is be in relationship with him rather than with any of the others. And to be in relationship with the others is idolatry, is to put something in the place of that most high God, as you say. It would be very uncomfortable for us if our view of scripture was the you know the theological textbook or the or the systematic theology right and and I think a lot of us we often think that that's what the Bible is, and we talked about this in the our our three episodes that started off this series, you know those pillars of of biblical reading or our uh, scriptural literacy. And if we were kind of coming to the text, expecting to see these neat philosophical categories displayed for us, this would cause a really big problem, wouldn't it, Father Jeffrey? Because we do have this idea that the Christian faith is a monotheistic faith. Yes, we have the Trinity, but yet it's one God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. Um, So we have this idea of Trinity, and we would expect to see that in the scriptures, but it's kind of the opposite to the isn't it like there, it seems that the scriptures do talk about other gods and not not necessarily even just like metaphorically, but as if they actually exist. And I'm wondering, yeah, how, how do we how, how do we square, you know, an understanding of being monotheistic with this understanding that the scriptures actually do sort of admit? That other gods exist. I think that the obvious starting point is just to set aside these philosophical notions of monotheism. I, I don't think it's a sustainable point of view once you get to the the narrative of the scriptures, um, and you know that's uncomfortable. I think because a lot of people are just brought up assuming that, and then they go to ex- elaborate lengths to explain away, you know, what are all, the, all these references to other gods and so forth. Um, and you know they'll 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 just proof text by taking one verse that suits them and and use that to interpret all the others. But the, I mean, the, you have to take the, the scriptures as a whole. Uh, one of the approaches to um, the scriptures that that we receive is uh, is something called um, you know canonical tradition, canonical interpretation. The idea that the the whole of the Bible, as we receive it, has to be has to be 
held together. Now, granted, it's written over thousands of years. There are different points of view, but all of that needs to somehow be brought together in, into some kind of interpretation. So you can't just, you know, cho- pick and choose what you want, you know, to use. You have to have, make in your interpretive kind of process, you need to make reference to to everything and kind of make sense of it, even if it is, a kind of, as I say, a kind of historical, you know, development or, or, or process. Um, but it, it's not the case that by the time you get to late Second Temple Judaism and the first century and the advent of, you know, Jesus Christ and his incarnation and his earthly life and ministry and death and resurrection, that we are at a kind of settled, you know, system that can just be the one that that is used always and everywhere. Because even in that matrix of the first century, there were different points of view, right? There were different kinds of interpretations of, of how all of this, this works. So, so, the, the one thing, though, that it's, is excluded is the idea that monotheism equates to this one, you know, ut- utterly transcendent philosophical God, one in a mathematical sense, right? Um, the, the mono, or the oneness of, of God, it has to do with this uh, superiority and reigning over all things, right? And, and sitting amidst um, a divine council, whatever you construe that as. Now, in the earliest, you know, cultures of the ancient Near East, what you were dealing with was, you know, people looking up and seeing all the stars of heaven, right? And deifying in their narratives, in their mythologies, all of those stars. So, so one of the places to go here is to, is to the depiction of, you know, all of those lights that are in the firmament, right? And in that ancient cosmology and so forth. And to understand that, you know, these are the heavenly beings, right? And then amidst those and superior to all of them, and the one who brought all of that into existence is the one true God. So you see the others are created, there's one uncreated. And that's where, you know, the hymn of creation of Genesis chapter one makes that abundantly clear because the surrounding cultures were saying things like, oh, the sun, that's a God, right? The Egyptians said that. And remember it was amidst the Egyptians that the Israelites were enslaved before they were delivered by, by Yahweh. So he points out and they write down and, and celebrate in their hymn that the sun itself was created by him. That's the kind of authority and precedence and priority and, you know, ultimately the philosophical categories of uncreated and created can be applied here. And you get that, you know, with the intersection between uh, the, the narratives and Greek philosophical categories. But, but there's the thing, you know, these heavenly things are understood to have been brought into existence by the one true God, right? So it's ultimately not that the others are, are, are not heavenly beings or part of that, that, uh, that the firmament of uh, and the divine council, all of that, but that Yahweh, the one that Israelites come to know, is not just you know initially he's the the better warrior god because they're they're winning victories unlike in unlikely situations. So you know our god is better than yours, but the the development ultimately is this is the god who brought all things from non-existence into being and who reigns over all of creation, and that that god then invites you know, our participation in his presence, right? So that divine counsel, one of the ways that it also gets expressed in throughout the the narratives of the Old Testament is that this is what is within God's realm, that this realm of heaven, that, that kind of, it's not somewhere else, it's overlapping, you know, with earth and God desires to dwell with his creation for now, you know, at the time of the narratives of the scriptures, what, when, 
human beings get an image of that council, what they're seeing is these heavenly beings in that court. And they, you know, and it takes different forms. In some traditions, it's going to emphasize angelic beings. In others, it will talk about the Elohim, the, these, this pantheon of gods that, that kind of surround God's throne and so forth. But in any case, it's, it's seen to be this depiction of heaven into which this one God of Israel is ultimately inviting his people. And that's the whole point of his um, coming into covenant relationship, first with Moses, who's invited into his presence, but then the forming of the covenant and his dwelling in their midst, right? The, the, the divine presence, the heavenly presence descends and enters into earth. So you have this kind of microcosm of all of creation, heaven and earth joined together in the tabernacle, in, in, in the ark of God's presence amidst his people. And that becomes the, the dominant point of the covenant is to come into this presence and all of this ritual purity and sacrifice and becoming clean, uh, you know, through all of these processes are so people can enter into that presence. And ultimately the, the prophetic intuition is that this will become a presence that is for everyone, right? That God desires what he has called his people here, Israel, to share in is to be through them a blessing for the whole world. So, so in some senses, the divine council as an understood as the presence of other beings in, in, within the presence of God is the very point of creation. And that's why you can't just sort of brush this aside and say, you know, well, this is, you know, we'll just ignore this kind of ancient cosmology and, and everything. It's it, the symbolism here is absolutely central to what the presence of God, this joining of heaven and earth is all about. And now you go and read, you know, the prologue of John and you understand what's going on. God's presence, his glory has come to dwell, to tabernacle in the midst of his people in the person of Jesus Christ. So God himself comes and makes permanent, you know, that possibility of, of entering into the divine presence. So, so it's central to the whole story. So that's why I'm kind of emphasizing, you know, let's not just brush it aside or interpret around it and say we're uncomfortable with what sounds like a little bit of paganism here, because it's the symbol set through which Israel comes to understand who God is and what his ultimate creational covenantal purposes are. If you haven't yet become a patron of Enacting the Kingdom over on Patreon, you're only getting a small fraction of everything we're up to. When you become a patron, for as little as $3 a month, you'll get immediate access to over 100 Patreon-exclusive episodes, weekly new releases, private live streams, and Patreon community events like Bible studies. And as we're social media free, Patreon is the only place to engage with us and others about these episodes. Go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to join the growing community. You're talking about this idea that what, what Yahweh wants is for actually humans to be joined to that divine council or to enter into that heavenly realm and sit and reign with with God himself. And you know, that reminds me of even as far back as Abraham, when he says, look, look up in the sky, what do you see? And he says, I see a whole bunch of stars. And he, and he says, um, you know, if you remain faithful, uh, or your, your, um, um, your children will be like the stars of heaven. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, it seems to have two meanings. One is there's going to be a lot of them, but also if, if you understand that the stars of heaven are actually, divine beings sitting enthroned in heaven with, with, with who have been given administrative power over creation by Yahweh, the most high God, you human, you mud creature 
that is your calling, right? That's who you're supposed to become. And then you have these images, I guess, of Moses who goes up the mountain, right? He goes into that divine presence as a human being, right? And he comes down and he's glowing. Um, you even have, um, you know, uh, Elijah uh, gets called up on the chariot, right? He goes up mm-hmm. into the into that heavenly realm. Uh, this idea of you know, in, in, it seems that in the in the Old Testament scriptures, there is these little flashes of stories of particular humans who sort of get called up into that realm. But it doesn't seem yet to have been like everybody. That's that, that's exactly right. So like in some ways, the, you know, in the tabernacle, you have this kind of mini working model. And obviously, eventually Solomon's temple will function in the same way, this working model of God's purposes, right? In this small, limited, constrained place, God dwells with his people. But it, you know, it, it's constrained in so many ways. It's geographically constrained to just the one place. God's presence is nowhere else in that way, right? And God's presence descends and fills that place. And it's also constrained in the sense that very few people would ever have access to it, right? And so, you know, to enter into the most sacred place of that required a tremendous amount of preparation, ritual purity, uh, sacrifice, and so forth. And so very few people were able to do that. And then you have these outstanding figures who who are caught up into something like that, Moses on Mount Sinai, Elijah, as you say, in the chariot, and so forth. And But it's rare, but, but they are the representative symbols of what God desires you know, for all people. And, and a place to go here, uh, and, and this helps, as I say, it's one of these places where you know, you either translate around what's being written, and I'll talk about that in a second here, or you you just kind of set it aside, or you make it into just something, you know, pro- prophetic about Christ. But this is Psalm eight, right, which talks about this divine majesty and the the celestial courts, heavenly beings, and the ultimate place that God intends for human beings, as you say, this invitation to come into that heavenly realm. So Psalm 8, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So that's O O Yahweh, first of all. So again, the the God of Israel, the one they know by the name Yahweh that was revealed to to Moses on Mount Sinai, is the sovereign. He's the, the one true God above all others. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, right? So back to the this heavenly realm and so forth, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, right? God created those. These are not other gods beside him, you know, of equal rank. These are created. And then the question becomes, what are humans that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? In, in all of this, right, you have this heavenly depiction, the glory of God's, you know, celestial realm. What are human beings in the midst of that? Well, this is what's telling. Verse five, yet you have made them, human beings, a little lower than the gods, than the Elohim. And it's in the plural here. And crowned them with glory and honor. Now, in a lot of translations, um, that gets rendered as just little lower than God, capital G, because people are uncomfortable with the idea that there are these other gods, right? Uh, but it's also translated variously as divine beings or even angels. I've seen all these different English renderings of that. But 
But literally what it's saying here, yet you have made them a little lower, human beings, a little lower than the gods, the, the Elohim, and crowned them with glory and honor. You've given them dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field. This is a reference back to, you know, human beings in Genesis being asked to steward creation, right? The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Yahweh, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, this kind of tells that, that whole story, right? And it, and it truly is a depiction of what is intended to be, because clearly it's not the case that human beings, if you look at the way human beings behave in the whole course of human history, it's pretty clear that human beings are, you know, in the same realm as all of these, you know, gods and heavenly beings and so forth in the presence of God. But so this is an indication of, of what God purposes in creation and specifically through his covenant with Abraham, as you say, where these, his descendants and all the people of the earth are to be blessed like the stars uh, of the heavens and so forth. So, and this will, in the new Testament will be picked up and applied to Christ, right? Of the one who is, the human being that the all of these divine beings are surprised to find elevated kind of above right that the one who is uh, entering into the divine presence as a human being because of course Jesus is not only fully god but fully man and so the full human being who arrives in the fullness of god's presence and is seen actually to be with god and to have you know been you know god before the ages in, is a kind of fulfillment of that. And then, of course, the, the move in New Testament eschatology is in Christ, we are called to share in that same thing. So there's the, the, the answer to the expectation and the prophecy and the narrative of the Old Testament, that in Christ, this is where this is fulfilled, that the God's purpose is for human beings to reign with him as co-rulers you know, of creation. And we do that in the one who ascends into the heavenly court, into the divine council, uh, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. And, and that, that kind of completes the picture. It's the answer to Abraham. It's the answer to, to Moses and to the prophets and to all of that covenant expectation and all that practice of the temple, the tabernacle and the ark, the sacrifice, the ritual purity, and a good place to kind of crystallize all this is the um, epistle to the Hebrews, because it it specifically talks about how Jesus fulfills all of this. And where does it start? It starts with this, this talking about the angels and the divine court and where human beings are placed, you know, within that, within that, within that realm and, and what God's purposes and expectations are for humanity. If you are getting value from this podcast, please consider writing a short, positive five-star review on your podcast app. And even though we are social media free, there is still a place you can keep up to date with Enacting the Kingdom. You can join the email list by going to enactingthekingdom.com. It seems to me that with this kind of understanding of what the scriptures are talking about, that the veneration of saints makes perfect sense. You know, like if you if you don't have this, Im okay. Let, I'm going to take my mind back to let's say the time of the Reformation, the time of the Enlightenment, and all that kind of stuff, where these these um, ways, these looking at the scriptures with these strict philosophical categories of monotheism and things like that, it would actually be very difficult to find any evidence for the why we should honor the saints, because it doesn't actually frame it that way it doesn't frame the honoring of the saints according to you know 
enlightenment or renaissance sort of philosophical frameworks it frames them according to scriptural frameworks right um this idea of that divine council and the, the purpose of human beings is actually to be members of that divine council with ruling authority you know with uh reigning with christ or reigning with god in all of creation so when we contemplate saints in the orthodox church when we contemplate their role what what their purpose is why do we have them why do we paint pictures of them why do we honor them why do we remember them it's kind of like a no-brainer at this point. Well, of, of course, if this is true, then what happens when somebody who has fully aligned themselves with the story, when they die, according to life in this age, they are born into the fullness of that reality and exist as Elohim, right? As sons of God, as, as, as members of this divine council who are enthroned along with Christ and and we even have this language in our Orthodox Church of you know theosis right um, becoming divine it, it 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 just all lines up like dominoes at least in my head Father Jeffrey I'm not sure if I'm getting you know all this across uh, verbally right now but in my head it's all kind of lining up yeah well so just let's pick up on that last point because here I'm going to say something that might be startling to Orthodox and that is theosis is heretical. If you start with a monotheism, that is, there is only one divine God who's utterly transcendent, right? That uh, that there isn't a divine council, that there isn't the whole of the narrative of the scriptures as we have it, right? So think about that for a moment. If if that's what being God is, right, and not in this other sense that the scriptures unfold, then to become that is heretical. How could we possibly move from being you know, created to uncreated. It just, it makes no sense. And that ultimately actually is the point of the the dispute, because by the time you're at the Reformation, you are very much in a modern understanding of what, uh, what God is, what monotheism is. You've had centuries by that point of, of the kind of uh, Islamic monotheism that really does kind of approach that kind of idea that, you know, God Allah is is just utterly beyond, you know, and the, the the very notion of God's presence in the midst of His people is would be, you know, completely unfathomable, right? And that's why they reject incarnation and so forth. And even to some extent, later rabbinic Judaism, in its relationship with Christianity, will exaggerate, you know, the the Jewish tradition to to come closer to saying something like that, right? So so later rabbinic Judaism tends towards a monotheism that is not this covenantal monotheism um, that we've de- described in the Old Testament. Ironically, right? I mean, I mean, it's just part of the the debates, you know, of that period. But by the time you get to the Renaissance and and late Middle Ages and 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 the Reformation, Christianity itself has begun to take on you know these qualities. And in that context, as I say, if that's your idea of what theos is right if theos is not elohim in that wider sense that we've been describing then theosis divinization is it is indeed heretical right because that would be transgressing you know the this this unpassable divide between created and uncreated um but that's not what we're arguing so as your as your point says there you know the the idea of becoming a saint which we're all called to do is to participate in what psalm 8 is talking about that and it's God's creational purpose to raise the mud creature, the one made from the earth, to breathe his spirit into him and to elevate human beings into his own presence. The whole point of the whole story 
is for God to be with his people, right? The whole point is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what we mean by saints. That's what we mean by theosis. That's what we mean by this is the fulfillment in Jesus Christ of a, of a story of God who, who reigns amidst the council of divine beings, inviting participation of his creature uh, from made from the earth into that highest um, place within his own presence. And that is assured by the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the fullest sense, not just his birth, not just his earthly ministry, not just his passion and death and resurrection, but right through to his ascension on high as a human being to stand in the presence of God and to be in Christ, which is what the New Testament, what the apostolic um, charisma invites us to do, to enter into relationship and participation in the very body of Jesus Christ. That's what it is to call him Kyrios, to call him the Lord. By that, we are brought into that same place. That's what being a saint is. That's what theosis is. And it's possible because of this broader understanding of, of, of what godhood is and what divine beings are and so forth. So no matter what, I mean, as I say, there's different tranches or, or stages or phases of what the divine council looks like in the Old Testament narratives. And I wouldn't want to just kind of in, even them out and reduce them you know, to, to one thing. Just to give you an example, when the, the Jews had contact with the Persians in the post-exilic era, because it was, of course, the Persians who came and delivered them from slavery in Babylon, um, you know, th this takes on a very angelic shape. And that's really what we've inherited in, in our descriptions, in our liturgy, in the Orthodox Church, and so forth. And we get this through, you know, figures in the early church, like Dionysius the Areopagite, uh, who described the celestial hierarchy and that sort of thing. A lot of that's a Persian kind of version of all this because they they had all these angels and demons and so forth the earlier version is just, version is to speak um more clearly just about the gods right the elohim uh, which were the gods of all the nations and each nation was understood to have a different god this is what happened god uh, moses in deuteronomy specifically talks about that 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 god has a portioned the one true god yahweh has apportioned the elohim the the, the little gods as rulers of all the nations right and so another strong image that you get in the New Testament is how Jesus Christ has subdued and overturned those gods. St. Paul talks about that, that those gods have been emptied of their authority. And, and that's what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection and ascension to, to God on high. But, but all that's to say that there's different versions, different kinds of phases of, of the development of the idea of the divine council. But to miss that is to miss a lot of our orthodox uh, theology around God's very purposes in creation and very purposes in relationship with human beings. You know, and to wrap this up in, in a typo, you know, let, let me know what you think of this statement, Father. To be, to not honor the saints is, you know, through, through our liturgies, through our hymns, through our prayers, is to deny the scriptures themselves, which tell us that the purpose of humanity, the purpose of humans is to be enthroned with God in heaven. Well, Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what do you do with transfiguration except to show that, you know, Jesus Christ, who is God's presence, and there's this kind of 
very powerful revelation of that where you have Moses and Elijah specifically the ones you you referenced earlier who stand in his presence this divine presence shared with the world this is the very culmination and purpose of the biblical narrative so absolutely in that regard if you if you carefully you know make saints part of that biblical narrative to deny them is to is to throw the whole story out thanks for listening I'm Father Yuri Gladio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning, and I'm joined on this show by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Come connect with us on Patreon with any thoughts and follow-ups about this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time.